I'm going to be talking about gratitude uh, this, uh, this weekend. Um, I was talking to my father uh, yesterday. My father is 98 years old. Uh, he recently got out of the hospital. Um, at the age of 98, any hospital stay is a scare for everybody. But he's uh, uh, getting back to normal. And the sign that he was getting back to normal is that he's interested in everything except his condition. When he was going through the, uh, the recent episodes of uh, ill health, uh, the only thing he could talk about was his physical condition. Now he's, he's, one of the questions he wanted to find out, I missed a week of, I missed a week of news. Why is Theresa May resigning, he wanted to know. Uh, so he wanted to know what was new, what was new with Brexit. So, um, anyway, I, I told him I was lecturing on gratitude this weekend. He said, well, you know, uh, what is there to say? You tell people, be thankful. What, what more can you say? And then he said something along the lines of, I'm sure you'll be able to fill up the time. You'll find something to say about gratitude, uh, which I, I hope to fill up the time. I hope to show you that it's, a, it's a, quite a big uh, subject, a big subject in the Bible, a big subject in history, a big subject in our daily lives and in uh, culture, and uh, perhaps unexpectedly, it's a big subject in our political life. Uh, so I hope to at least touch on some of those dimensions of gratitude over the course of the next couple of days. Uh, let us begin with prayer, though. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for his uh, self-gift for us. We thank you that he offered himself to you as uh, a, an, a final offering, a final thank offering, that he lived a life of continuous gratitude, and that by your grace and by your spirit we've been incorporated into his, uh, into his thanksgiving. Uh, we pray that you would teach us what it means to live lives of continuous thankfulness and continuous joy as we consider these things this, this weekend. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. H.L. Uh, Mencken was uh, a famous newspaper writer of the early 20th century. Uh, he was a, wrote for the Baltimore Sun uh, and uh, was a famous, famously atheistic and kind of profane writer. Uh, he told a little anecdote in an essay about a woman who had sent him a manuscript of her recent novel. Uh, and uh, she had pestered him to try to get him to respond he resisted it at first, but he finally relented, and he decided that he would uh, read the novel. And uh, he found it of very poor quality. He described it as twaddle, which is not a compliment. If you, if you, give, your, <laughs> if you give your novel to somebody and they say, this is twaddle, it's, they're not saying a nice thing about your novel. Um, and Mencken, uh, being a forthright journalist, wrote to the woman to say, uh, your novel is twaddle. Uh, I wasted uh, part of my life reading it. I wish I hadn't. And then he was initially surprised when she never responded to that critique. Uh, she never wrote back to thank him for the time that he had put in, to thank him for the uh, investment that he had made in her idiotic novel. Uh, but after he reflected on her non-response, he began to admire it. And that led him into thinking about gratitude and what's involved in thanking someone for a gift or a benefit that they do to you. He said uh, she's an imbecile in her writing, but at least she showed a little bit of dignity 
by refusing to thank me for my time and energy and my criticism. Giving thanks, Mencken goes on to say in this essay, giving thanks is always an admission that you're dependent on someone else. It's always an admission of a kind of inferiority to someone who can benefit you in ways that you can't benefit yourself. And so the woman, by refusing to give thanks for what Mencken had written to her and for the time he had taken to read her novel, uh, had shown that she did have a certain amount of dignity and uh, stature. She rose in his estimation because of her lack of gratitude. It's hard to find people like Mencken who speak ill of gratitude, who think that gratitude might display a moral fault, although there are some philosophers and thinkers over the centuries who have similar kind of concerns about gratitude and uh, the proper response to, receive the, to the gifts that we receive and the benefits that we enjoy from other people. Aristotle addresses the issue of gratitude and gift giving in various places in his writings. And Aristotle said that the magnanimous man, which is his uh, umbrella term for the virtuous man, the magnanimous man will remember the benefits that he does for people. If he receives a benefit, remembering that is not of such high priority as remembering the benefits he's done to people. If he receives a benefit, then it's incumbent on the magnanimous man to pay back the benefit as quickly as possible, to even out the books, to make sure that he doesn't remain indebted to the person who benefited him. You don't want to be put in that position where somebody else has something hanging over you, they've done you a favor, and they might expect you to do a favor back, so you make sure that you give a return gift, you do a return favor as quickly as possible so that you aren't left with that imbalance that may have to be balanced later on. Uh, more recently, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, who's best known for uh, his method of deconstruction. If you don't know Jacques Derrida, you probably have heard the term deconstruction. Jacques Derrida spent the last part of his life uh, thinking about gift giving. He wrote a number of books and essays on gift giving and what it means to give a gift and what it means to receive a gift properly. And Derrida, too, was somewhat suspicious of gratitude. In Derrida's view, if you were going to give a gift that was truly a gift and not some subtle way of manipulating somebody into doing a favor for you, then that, that gift had to be given without any expectation of return, even without expectation of the return of a thank you. If you do a favor for someone, you're thinking, at least they'll say thanks to me. At least they'll, you know, at least they'll like me a little more. At least they'll smile at me the next time I see them. For Derrida, that's not a gift anymore. Now you're back into a kind of economy of exchange. There's a, a, prid, a quid pro quo that you're, you're wanting to give them something to, so you get something back. You give them something in order to get a thank you back. You give them a gift or do a, them a benefit, do them a favor, so they do you a favor back. The purest gift, the only true gift, Derrida said, is a gift is that we don't expect any return on, uh, even the return of a thank you. So there are a few thinkers, a few odd thinkers out there who are suspicious about gratitude. But I dare say that most of us think of gratitude as a virtue, certainly as a, 
uh, a central part of our etiquette, of our interpersonal relationships. It's a central part of what it means to live politely and to treat other people with uh, a politeness. It's one of the first things that we teach our, chi- our, teach our kids. Uh, one of the first set of words we teach our kids is say thank you. Say thank you to grandma because she just gave you something. Whether or not you like it, I don't care if you like it. Say thank you to grandma because she gave you something and she's your grandma, so th- say thank you to her. We teach our kids to say thank you early on in life and we expect them to show at least that amount of gratitude uh, throughout their lives. Uh, Students of gratitude practices, there are such, there are such people, uh, students who have studied different cultures of gratitude have pointed out that English speakers particularly are apt to uh, use the, a thank you or some expression of gratitude repeatedly uh, throughout the day. I was, uh, I'm always, when I'm, when I'm giving a talk on gratitude, I'm always a little bit conscious of what's happening around me during the course of the day leading up to it. We had lunch uh, at a pizza place today I think we all probably said thank you about a dozen times for things like uh, the waitress coming and grabbing a plate. Yeah, thank you for taking the plate away. Well, you know, she's getting paid for that. That is her job, but we feel the need to say thank you. We ordered food and she brings us our food. This is kind of a contractual arrangement, but we still think, yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing that food that I'm going to pay for and that you're getting paid to serve me. Um, We're saying thank you all the time. We say thank you a hundred times a day without, uh, usually without thinking about it. That kind, of exp- that kind of superficial expression of thanks, at least, is a central part of what it means to live, uh, to be polite and to live in, with proper etiquette. In the ancient world, uh, thank yous and gratitude was not simply, it was not simply a matter of etiquette, but it was a major public concern. It was a major concern for the health of society. Uh, the great philosophers of the Roman world wrote treatises on how to give and receive gifts properly. Cicero wrote wrote on this in various treatises, and Seneca wrote the kind of classical treatise on gift giving called On the Benefits, De Beneficiis. It's about how you give gifts in a way that doesn't uh, offend the recipient of your gift, and how you receive gifts, how you say thank you, and what thank you means for an ancient Roman. And according to Seneca, gratitude, gifts and gratitude were not just a matter of etiquette, but gifts and gratitude were the glue that held society together. He describes uh, social life as a kind of dance, as a kind of dance, I guess, uh, an, an ancient dance with a ball where you have the dancers passing a ball back and forth, rhythmically apparently, to make it a dance, but they're passing the ball back and forth. That's his image of society, and gifts and return gifts are the ball that's passed back and forth by these dancers. That's how society functions. Uh, A lot of the gift giving and reception, in the Roman world at least, was gift giving and reception that took place between upper class Romans and lesser Romans, between patrician Romans and their clients, between patrons, benefactors, and their clients. This is how a benefactor exercised his power. Of course, some people in the Roman world had uh, the, the power to coerce people. Uh, they could force people to do things by threatening them with physical harm. But that's not the way society generally operated. Society generally operated because wealthy people would do favors for their clients, for people who weren't so well off or weren't so well connected. 
So if you're a, an upper-class Roman and you have connections, one of the ways that you gain a following, gain a, client, a clientele that will do favors for you is by doing favors for them. That might be a gift of a financial gift. It might be introducing to them to somebody that might help them uh, with a, a job, a promotion, a, a, a legal case. Uh, if you know a good lawyer and your client doesn't, then you do a benefit, you do a favor for him by offering to introduce him to your, uh, to your barrister, to your attorney. Uh, the uh, superiors exercised their authority and gained a following by doing benefits. And then they expected their inferiors, their subordinates, the recipients of the gift, to repay those in various ways. And this is one of the things that Seneca addresses at some length. Seneca says that if you receive a benefit, you shouldn't be ungrateful by keeping your thanks to yourself. You should call a public meeting and tell everyone what a great benefit your patron has done to you. You should let everybody know how great this patron is. That's the responsibility of the recipient of the gift. That's the way you show gratitude. You show gratitude by being effusive in your praise. You never, uh, you never downplay a gift. You always exaggerate the importance of the gift. And, and Seneca actually gives advice. He gives little one-liners that uh, clients can use to kind of build up and butter up their patrons. Things like, you have no idea how much you have helped or how many people you've helped. I am forever indebted to you. I can never repay the benefit you've done for me. This is what uh, clients, the recipients of gifts and benefits and favors, uh, that's the way they were expected to show gratitude to their benefactors. Uh, for Seneca and for many Romans, ingratitude, the opposite of gratitude, was the greatest of all evils. Seneca lists off a number of great crimes, uh, homicide and uh, unfaithfulness in marriage. There's a lot of things that are crimes, but the worst person of all, he says, is the ungrateful person. And usually, he says, the other vices that infect people have some element of ingratitude involved in it. In some way, they're not showing proper uh, return on the gift that they were given. They're forgetting the gift they were given. They're forgetting the benefit. Or they're treating the benefit as if it were not a benefit, as if it were actually a, doing damage to them. Or they never repay. Uh, they never uh, find an opportunity or seek an opportunity to give back something to the person who's benefited them. Uh, those kind of people, those ungrateful people, are the worst people of all. And for Seneca, ingratitude is the source of all kinds of vices, not just personal vices, but it's the source of all kinds of political vices. Ingratitude is the source of rebellion. You can see how this would work if, if the system is set up in the way I described, where patrons are doing benefits and favors for their clients, and the clients don't receive them properly and don't, uh, don't, don't repay them. Uh, if they are deliberately not going to repay, if they're deliberately ungrateful, then the whole system kind of grinds to a halt. The benefactors no longer have the power to, uh, that they can exercise through their gifts. The recipients are no longer being beholden by those gifts and those benefits that they receive. And the whole social system kind of grinds to a halt. 
rebellions, uh, political rebellions, were seen to be motivated by ingratitude. Uh, you'd have the people who were not grateful for the many benefits that they received from their rulers. Uh, they began to complain about their rulers instead of being grateful for the peace and order that Rome provided for them, for the Roman, that the Roman rulers provided. And that ingratitude was the source of all kinds of sedition. So you had to keep a check on ingratitude. This, this idea that ingratitude is a major political danger continues in Western thought right up through, at least through the Renaissance. It's still very prominent in Shakespeare, as we'll see in a little bit. I'll talk about a Shakespeare play where gratitude is a, a, a prominent theme. But all the way through, uh, not just from Roman times, but all the way through, up into the early modern period in Europe, European thought, gratitude in this sense was, particularly ingratitude, was seen as a, a great danger to the body politic. It's not just a bad thing, it's not just bad etiquette. It's a danger to the order of society. Uh, perhaps you've detected in some of the ways I've described this, that gratitude in the way that it functioned in the ancient world, I was picking, picking out Rome in particular, but it functions similarly in other cultures. Gratitude in these cultures has kind of a dark side to it. After all, if you have received a benefit from somebody that you literally cannot ever repay, if the benefit is so huge that you literally cannot ever repay it, then you are forever in that person's debt. A debt, the Bible says, debt is a form of slavery. We think of financial debt as uh, the primary kind of debt that one might have. But I think in the ancient world, the, ki the kinds of debts that people owed were primarily social debts. They were not uh, loans of money. They were benefits that were done that put them in a subordinate position in relation to their benefactor, and they had to serve their benefactor in some way. That's the way that, that's the, way that the system was supposed to work. The benefactor can always call in his favor. He can call in his debt. And what if he calls in his debt in a way that is, offends the client's moral scruples? What if he's a godfather and he's done you a big, big favor and then he makes you an offer that you can't refuse? <laughs> uh, you gotta go kill somebody for me. This guy's bothering me. You need, to go, you need to go take care of him. If you don't, you're not only uh, gonna rouse the wrath of the godfather, but you're also being supremely ungrateful to the Godfather who's done everything for you. I mean, he's, he's the reason why you're still surviving. He may have gotten you through a, through a rough patch in your business. He might, have, he might have provided protection for you at some point, but someday he's going to uh, call in his debt. He's gonna call in his favor, and if you're permanently indebted, you're gonna be permanently enslaved, and the benefactor is going to be able to uh, wield that over you in some way or other. Uh, there was, in the ancient world, such a thing as gratitude slavery. There's such a thing as receiving a benefit that puts you in a subordinate position and that the benefactor could use that subordinate position to his own benefit and require you, demand from you, certain kinds of return benefits, certain kinds of return gifts. And if you didn't pay them, then you were uh, making him angry, but you were also in danger of... Um, of uh, you're also, you're, your conscience is spent because you've done something uh, against, uh, you've, you've violated this bond of trust that was created by the gift that you received. Uh, one of the, uh, I think one of the most um, insightful explorers of gratitude debt 
and the dangers both of gratitude, the dangers of the dark side of gratitude, and the problems of ingratitude. Uh, one of the most incisive explorers of those issues is uh, Shakespeare. A number of Shakespeare's plays turn on questions about gratitude and ingratitude. Um, King Lear, if you're familiar with King Lear, uh, that's, a, that's a prominent theme in King Lear. Lear is the father of three daughters. He's given everything to them. He's raised them. And then he divides his kingdom among them, tries to. Only two of them get parts of the kingdom. The third one can't, doesn't want to play the game that he's playing, and so she, she's cut out. And he uh, rejects her as an ungrateful daughter. Um, monster ingratitude. They become monstrous. They're no longer human because they aren't showing the kind of gratitude that a human person would show to their, to their father. And then the daughters who do get their inheritance prove themselves to be uh, worse than the one who didn't get an inheritance. The one who didn't get the inheritance, Cordelia, is the good daughter. The ones who did get part of the inheritance are the bad daughters. They turn against, they turn against King Lear. But the whole story turns on the, uh, the problems of children receiving benefits from a parent and the problems of ingratitude that arise there. But Shakespeare explores these issues I think most uh, explicitly when he's dealing with the Roman world. A number of his Roman plays uh, turn on issues of political gratitude or ingratitude. And to kind of fill out the picture of the dark side of gratitude, gratitude slavery as I've been describing it, I want to spend some time talking about one of his plays, uh, Coriolanus. Uh, Coriolanus is not one of his most popular plays, although it was made into a film in the last 10 years or so, uh, you can, um, one, of the, one of the Fines brothers, Joseph Fine, Rafe Fines, I don't remember which, plays the lead character, uh, Coriolanus. Um, but that's, a, that's one of the Roman plays that is, um, explores this theme, and I think explores it in a very subtle way that exposes various dimensions of the, of pro, of the problems of gratitude and the ways that gratitude and ingratitude can create political and social ills. Coriolanus is about a character named Gaius Martius. Martius, M-A-R-T-I-U-S, devoted to Mars. Uh, He is a warrior. In fact, he's the hero of Rome during this time. He is an actual character, a historical character. Uh, Shakespeare found this story in Plutarch, and he wrote the play uh, based on what Plutarch tells him about Coriolanus. Uh, Gaius Martius was the hero of Rome fighting against the... the, uh, enemies that Rome was then facing who were the Volscans. Uh, And one of the uh, most important battles was the conquest of the city of Corioli. Corioli was a Volscan city that according to Shakespeare's play at least, uh, Martius, uh, Gaius Martius was able to conquer virtually single-handedly. He's like a superhero going into the city and he conquers the city all by himself. All All of the other soldiers that are supposed to go in with him are cowering like, as he calls them, goslings at the gate. They don't want to go in, and so he tears in there uh, like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's kinda, that dates me, doesn't it? Um, you know, the former governor of California, that Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he goes in there like some superhero, and he takes the whole city. And because he's taken the city Coriolani, he gets the honorific title Coriolanus. So the, the, the play is about him. Coriolanus, after his military career, as uh, many soldiers in the ancient world and the modern world do, decides to embark on a political career. 
he's encouraged to run for office, the office of consul, which was the highest office in Rome at the time. In order to run for consul, he had to get the support of the patricians, the upper-class Romans. That's Coriolanus's own class. That's easy to get their support. They all say that they want him to become consul. The more difficult part is to get the support of the plebeians, the common citizens of Rome. This is difficult for a couple of reasons. One reason is that in order to gain the support of the plebeians, uh, Coriolanus has to dress up like a plebe. He can, has to not dress up like a patrician, and he has to go around through the city of Rome, and he has to kind of lower himself down to the position of the plebes in order to gain their support. And particularly, he has to show off the scars that he received in his various wars protecting Rome. The scars are signs of the benefits that he's done to Rome, and they're supposed to arouse this feeling of gratitude from the people. Well, look at all that he's sacrificed for us. He's given his own body for us. We should at least make him consul. You know, that's the least we can do when he's done all this for us. Uh, Coriolanus is really too proud to do either of those things, either to dress up like a plebe and go to try to try to win their favor and to even show off his scars. That seems like it's kind of, uh, that's beneath him to try, to try to win their favor by showing off his scars. So he doesn't want to do that. The other complication is that Rome is in a, uh, in a, a period in its history when the, the plebes, the common people, have gained representation in the Roman system. Uh, through the, what was called the tri uh, tri tribunate, through the tribunes of Rome. These are not representatives of a patrician class, but these are representatives of the lower classes, the plebeian class. Uh, the tribunes hate Coriolanus. He hates them, uh, for that matter. They hate each other. And the tribunes don't want Coriolanus to become a consul. So they encourage the people to reject Coriolanus, and they drum up a lot of, uh, ag they agitate in order to get the people to turn Coriolanus down so that he doesn't become consul. Uh, and they provoke him into an outburst against the Roman system. He describes the Roman system as a, a system of double worship. You're trying to have these experienced, wise, wealthy Romans leading Rome, the patricians. At the same time, those patricians who are really qualified to lead have to get the support of these ignorant masses who don't know anything who've never risked their lives for Rome, why should they have any say? We're bowing to the patricians, we're bowing to the uh, plebeians. Uh, there's a double worship going on. He talks about the, uh, the absurdity of people like himself who have experience and wisdom, who have actually, again, sacrificed their bodies for the sake of Rome, to have to wait uh, on the yay or nay of general ignorance, as he calls it. He has to wait for the plebes who don't know anything to approve him as a leader. He's got a point, right? <laughs> He's got a point. He's been trained from childhood to be a leader in Rome, to be a warrior, to be eventually a consul, a leader in peacetime. The tribunes are representing people who don't know anything. How, what kind of system is it that requires him and his kind to submit to the uh, decisions and the votes, the voices, as the play says, the voices of the plebes. That's the kind of outburst that uh, gets him into hot water. 
Because what he's actually attacking, or what the tribunes say he's attacking, is not the plebes or the tribunes. He, say, he says they're attacking the, he's attacking the Roman system. It's an act of treason for Coriolanus to describe the Roman system as a system of double worship, to reject the, uh, the plebes' role in Rome as, uh, as, the gen, as the yea or nay of general ignorance. The tribunes provoke this outburst from Coriolanus, and he is eventually banished from Rome. He kind of doubles down, hardens against these attacks, uh, and they send him packing out of Rome. Uh, Coriolanus doesn't care. There's a, there's a world elsewhere, he says. You banish me, he says. No, I banish you. After all that he's done for them, all the benefits he's done for Rome, this ungrateful rabble has now chased him out of town. And in, in, in revenge, he goes out of the city and joins the Volscans. These are the main opponents of the Romans at the time. He joins with Ophidius, the captain of the Volscan army. And along with Ophidius, Coriolanus begins to besiege his own city. He's going to teach this ungrateful rabble a lesson in gratitude. They rejected me. They're going to, they're going to see that that was a, uh, if I could do an Arnold Schwarzenegger, big mistake. Just think of, just think of Arnold saying that. Big mistake. To, to, to cast me out of Rome uh, and to show this kind of ingratitude. So what does Rome to do? Well, they send delegations out of Rome to the Volscan camp trying to appeal to Coriolanus to relent. Because if Coriolanus gives up the siege, then the Volscans will also leave. The only way they have a chance to uh, besiege Rome and, and conquer Rome is if Coriolanus is on their side. So first they send out Menenius. Menenius is a patrician. Um, Coriolanus's father is, uh, died when he was a boy. Uh, Menenius is the closest thing he has to a father figure. And Menenius goes and appeals to Coriolanus, uh, please think of your, this is your own city. These are your own people. Don't attack them. Don't kill them. And Coriolanus refuses. They send, up another de send out another de uh, delegation. He refuses. And finally, they send his mom, Volumnia. Uh, and Volumnia goes with his wife, Coriolanus's wife, and his son. And they go and appeal to Coriolanus, uh, asking him to relent, to give up his vengeance, and to uh, break the siege, and not to conquer Rome. He's rejected his mentor, Menenius. He's rejected these other delegations. He can't reject mom. And he gives up the siege. Uh, he can't really go back into Rome. But when he goes back to the Volscans, uh, they uh, fall on him and kill him. And so his agreement to break the siege saves Rome, but it ends with Coriolanus's death. Now this play has been... Uh, presented in all kinds of different, uh, with all kinds of different tones. Uh, it can be played as a kind of pro-democratic or pro-popular play because Coriolanus is really not a very sympathetic character. It can be played as a play that favors Coriolanus, the patrician who knows what he's doing and really does have a right to rule and shouldn't have to answer to these people who, are, who don't know anything. You can play that either way. I think that really the heart of the play, the heart of the politics of the play, has to do with gratitude and ingratitude and the political effects of ingratitude. And there's ingratitude in a couple of different directions. There's ingratitude on the part of the people of Rome. 
This is set up very early in the play when uh, Meninius, early in the play during a, during a bread riot in Rome, tries to calm down the populace. P- Meninius, again, is Coriolanus' mentor. He's an old man. He's a patrician. But he's trying to calm down the, the people who don't have enough bread. They see food going into the houses of the patricians. They, why don't they have bread? Why don't they get food if the patricians are getting food? And Meninius tells a parable. And the parable is about a body. And the parts of the body start getting envious of the stomach. Because the food always goes to the stomach. And they don't get any food. And so they rebel against the stomach so that they can get food too. And the stomach of Rome is the patricians, the leaders of Rome. Of course they get fed, but that's because they're the leaders. They have to get fed. And the rest of the body can be fed only if the stomach gets fed first. That's how the rest of the body gets fed. And if they rebel against the stomach, they're only harming themselves. If they become ungrateful for what the stomach is doing for them, and they, uh, in their ingratitude they rebel against the stomach, then uh, they, the whole body is going to die. The whole body is going to turn, uh, turn against itself. It's going to eat up itself. He warns against a kind of cannibalism where the body, the body of Rome will eat up itself. The patricians are the stomach. And the plebes are the body parts that are rebelling against the stomach. Of course, Coriolanus and his comrades get food because they're the ones protecting the city. They should get it first. So it's, that issue is raised early on in the play in that, uh, in that parable. It's also raised as Coriolanus goes out in order to win the votes or voices of the plebes. Uh, one of the citizens, known as third citizen, says this. If he tell us of his noble deeds... We must tell him our noble acceptances of them. Ingratitude is monstrous. And for the multitude to be ungrateful were to make a monster of the multitude, of which we being members should bring ourselves to be monstrous members. If we don't show proper gratitude to Coriolanus, he's saying, by voting him, by giving our support for him as to become consul, then we're not showing proper gratitude for his services to Rome. That makes us something less than human. Uh, Shakespeare frequently puns on the word kind. Kind means gentle. Kind also has, is tied up in, in Elizabethan English with the idea of gratitude. Thanks, thanks to someone. If you're kind, that means you're, uh, you're, uh, uh, that means you're showing proper gratitude. The unkindest cut of all, Brutus's attack on Julius Caesar. It's not just, he's not just being unkind, he's being ungrateful because Caesar made Brutus and now he's turned against him. So if you aren't kind in that sense, then you become something less than human. You depart from the kind of being that you are. You're no longer human. You become a monster. The third citizen says that at the beginning and through the course of the rest of the play, we find that that's actually what happens. The mob turns monstrous. The mob turns into kind of a cannibal that eats up its own stomach. The mob chews up Coriolanus, who is the hero of Rome, the protector of Rome, uh, who has a right to be one of the rulers of Rome. The mob turns against him in their ingratitude, chews him up and spits him out, and uh, it fulfills Menenius's parable. Early in the play, Menenius warns that uh, the good gods forbid that our renowned Rome, whose gratitude toward her deserved children is enrolled in Job's own book, should, like an unnatural dam, D-A-M, an unnatural mother, 
eat up her own. But that's just what Rome has done. The Roman people, because they, they're ungrateful to Coriolanus, chew him up and spit him out of Rome and banish him. And then he comes back, as he explicitly says, to pour war into the bowels of ungrateful Rome. He's taking vengeance for their ingratitude. The, 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 the plebes, the populace of Rome, violate every standard of gratitude. They treat Coriolanus's benefits as if they were harm. They forget about his benefits. Memory is tied in with gratitude. Everyone who talks about gratitude talks about the connection between gratitude and memory. Thomas Aquinas, when he talks about gratitude in the Summa Theologiae, talks about the importance of memory, remembering the benefit that was given to you. That's part, that's part of gratitude. Uh, part of gratitude is repaying. Not just expression of thanks, but looking for opportunities to do a good favor back to the person who has done a favor for you. The people of Rome uh, uh, fail on all of those points. They forget the benefits that Coriolanus has done. They treat him as if he were a curse rather than a blessing to the city. Uh, they don't repay him. Instead, they repay him with banishment. The complication in the play is that Coriolanus is just as ungrateful as the people are. You have this sedition rising from the bottom against Coriolanus and his patrician class. But Coriolanus shows no kindness or no, and no gratitude toward the people. Ironically, his first word in the play is thanks. It's the first word he utters right in the, in the first scene of the play. But it is ironic because within a few lines he's talking about the dissentious rogues that are in Rome. He's talking about the uh, Roman people as a poor itch, as scabs. He has nothing but contempt for the people. The people that he's supposed to be protecting, he has nothing but contempt for. He certainly isn't grateful to the people of Rome for whatever uh, benefits they bring to the patricians. Obviously, if Rome is a functioning city, the common people are doing a lot to make the patricians' life easier. Coriolanus has no time to even think about that. He's just as ungrateful toward the people as they are to him. He's also ungrateful in a more subtle way because he, he, he's not just ungrateful because he doesn't remember or return benefits that the people do to him. He's also ungrateful because he re, kind of refuses, like Aristotle's magnanimous man, he refuses to get into the game of uh, benefits and return benefits. He doesn't want to be indebted to anyone. And so when somebody wants to give him an honor after a battle, he refuses. It looks like humility, but the uh, officer who's trying to give him that honor recognizes that it's something else. He doesn't want to be beholden to anyone. He wants to be a man to himself. He wants to be isolated. He doesn't want to be dependent. He doesn't want to be indebted in any way. He just refuses to go into that game. Instead, he thinks of his relationships with other Romans and with Rome itself as kind of a contract. Instead of thinking of it as a personal benefit done that he has to return, he thinks of it in contractual terms. I have certain obligations that I will fulfill. If they will fulfill their obligations to me, they've broken their part of the contract, therefore I may break my part of the contract. He's constantly talking in those kinds of terms about the merits of the people and the way they haven't treated him, they haven't paid the proper price for his services. And so he's just going to find some other employer. <laughs> and he finds the other employer in the Volscans who are attacking Rome. 
Instead of thinking about the relations he has with the people of Rome as being deeply rooted in the benefits that they do one another, in this cycle of giving and receiving, this dance of giving and receiving, this dance of gift and gratitude that Seneca describes. Instead of seeing it that way, he sees it as a purely contractual relationship. They have obligations, they don't meet them, I don't have to meet my obligations. And in the end, Coriolanus is described as being just as monstrous as the people. He's a particular kind of monster. Several times in the play, he's described as a dragon. A dragon is a proverbially, in case you don't know dragon habits, dragons are proverbially loners. They don't come in packs. They're not social creatures. Uh, they're too envious to be social creatures. They're too greedy to be social creatures. You know, every dragon you've ever seen has a horde. He's not sharing it with other dragons, right? Unless, you know, maybe the softened dragons of how to train your dragon. Those, are those real dragons? I don't know. There's, they're a community of dragons. Okay, I'll grant you that. All the traditional stories about dragons, they're loners. And that's the way that Coriolanus is described. One character describes him this way. Believe it or not, though I go alone, like to a lonely dragon that his fen makes feared and talked of more than seen, your son will or exceed the common or be caught with uh, baits and practice. Another says, he bears all things fairly and shows good husbandry for the Volscan state, fights dragon-like and does achieve as soon as draw his sword. Yet he hath left undone that which should break his neck or hazard mine, whene'er we come to your account. Somebody else says, there's a difference between a grub and a butterfly. Your butterfly was a grub. This Martius, um, Coriolanus, is grown from man to dragon. He has wings. He's more than a creeping thing. It's a great line. He's more than a creeping thing. He's become monstrous because of his, his own ingratitude to the monstrous populace. This comes particularly to a head when he's waiting to receive his mother, Volumnia, as she comes out from Rome to appeal to him to break off the siege. He knows that this is going to be, it's going to be hard to resist her appeal. And so he's doing a little pep talk to himself, a little monologue to himself, trying to steel himself against her appeal and the affection that he should show her. He says this, my mother bows as if Olympus to a molehill should in supplication nod. And my young boy hath an aspect of intercession, which great nature cries, deny not. Let the Vol Volskis plow Rome and harrow Italy. I'll never be such a gosling as to obey instinct, but I shall stand as if a man were author of himself and knew no other kin. In order to resist her appeal, he has to pretend like he just created himself. He's a pure individual, not indebted to anyone, uh, not beholden to anyone. Uh, he stands as if he were author of himself and knew no other kin. So you have this conflict between these, you have these conflicting ingratitudes, the ingratitude of the people toward Coriolanus, Coriolanus ingratitude toward the people. He's trying to keep himself from showing gratitude even toward his mother. He doesn't want to hear her appeal. And you have this clash, this crisis in Rome, this political crisis, because the leaders and the people are both showing this kind of ingratitude toward one another. 
But the twist of the play comes at the end. Because the play ends not with Coriolanus pretending like he's author of himself. The play ends with Coriolanus listening to his mother and accepting her appeal and giving up the siege of Rome. He does what she asks. She has this great speech, I won't read it all, but you, you can imagine the kind of manipulative things a mother might say in these circumstances. You never loved me. You never cared for me. Of course, Coriolanus has devoted his entire life to his mother. Uh, he's a mama's boy, which doesn't mean he's unmanly because she's a pretty tough woman. She's kind of an embodiment of Rome. And she's taught him his valor. He didn't have a father around, so she had to teach him valor. When he was a young boy and he'd come back and he'd be crying about something, she'd say, buck up, get tough, kid. You're going to have worse than that. She's the one who made him who he is. Okay? Um, so uh, he's devoted his life to her, but then she says, you've never, you've never done anything for me. You've never in your life showed your dear mother any courtesy. And finally he says, she says at the end of her speech, she doesn't seem to be responding in any way. She says, come, let's go. This fellow had a Volscan to his mother. She's renouncing Coriolanus. This is not my child. His wife is in Coriolanus, and his child is like him by chance. Uh, he's not actually connected with Rome. If he were connected with Rome in any way, then he would be responding to this appeal. He would show some gratitude to his mom, at least. If he doesn't, even if he doesn't show any gratitude toward Menenius or the other patricians or Rome itself, at least he should show some gratitude toward his mom. And eventually he does. But what happens when he does? He responds the way a grateful person should respond. Under the circumstances, he leaves off the siege. He delivers Rome. But then he goes off and gets himself killed. It's too late for him to return to Rome and return to the cycle of gifts and benefits and gratitude that's, that is Roman life. But it's because of his act of gratitude, as it were, that's what leads to his death. If he had been able to steal himself and act like he had no kin, like he were author of himself, he were able, actually able to do that, he would have kept attacking Rome and he would have conquered Rome, along with the Volscans, but he can't. It's not the ingratitude that finally comes and they finally kills Coriolanus. It's the gratitude. It's the demands of gratitude. It's because he finds himself utterly beholden, not just to his mother, but to all that his mother represents, which is Rome. And Rome demands the ultimate sacrifice of her children. So this is the dilemma that Coriolanus leaves us with. And I think it's the dilemma that ancient societies in general leave regarding gratitude. Uh, gratitude is an obligation. You try to repay in some fashion the benefits that are done to you. Ingratitude is a vice. But the forms, of it, the forms of gratitude that are operating in the ancient world often leave people enslaved. So you have a choice between gratitude slavery on the one hand or monstrous ingratitude on the other. Which are you going to choose? <laughs> are you going to choose a Rome that's dissolving because everybody's ungrateful to everybody else? Or are you going to choose a Rome that makes such absolute demands uh, uh, by an appeal to your obligation, your gratitude obligations toward the city? Rome is caught between monstrous ingratitude and a kind of cannibalistic gratitude. 
That's the dilemma that Coriolanus leaves us with. It's the dilemma that I want to try to unravel uh, tomorrow morning as we start looking at the New Testament and how Jesus talks about thanks and how Jesus talks about giving and receiving. Because I think the gospel comes into the world that Shakespeare is describing. Shakespeare is not a Roman, but he understands Romans. And he understands what makes Romans tick. And I think that Coriolanus actually illustrates very profoundly the dilemmas that Roman society is in. The gospel comes into that situation and gives uh, a possibility for uh, truly grateful people, for gratitude that is not gratitude slavery, uh, for a gratitude that uh, encompasses everything, be thankful everywhere in all circumstances for all things, as Paul says. Uh, and yet avoids the dilemmas that uh, Coriolanus uh, exemplifies. That'll be our topic for tomorrow morning. All right. Uh, Let me close this in prayer. Father, we're grateful to you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our benefactor, that he gives all gifts, that you are the source of all good and perfect gifts that come to us through your Son and by your Spirit. And we thank you that you've gifted each of us uh, to serve you and to serve one another. We pray as we think about these things through the rest of the weekend that you would bless us in that, that you would fill our hearts with genuine gratitude and thanksgiving to you, uh, and that we would serve one another in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.